When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yo, what's good? It's Black Trey and I got a show called Growing Up the Same with Jason Madison where we talk to guests about their childhood memories that I'm sure everyone can relate to. You even get some life advice at the end. Our show has featured guests like Dom Kennedy, J.J. Reddick, Baron Davis, Brian Koppelman, Bomani Jones, Mina Kimes, and many more. Be sure to check us out on the Black Opinions Matter feed under the Count the Deans Network. Oh yeah, and don't forget to tell a friend to tell a friend to subscribe, rate, and review. And also subscribe, rate, and review to the separate Growing Up the Same feed. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the latest edition of the Woke Bros. Of course, I'm Big Waz, a.k.a. Wazdy Lambray, and we got a very, 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 very special show in line for you in, um, in line for you guys today. Not just because Nando is fresh off the boat in Ibiza and Barcelona, he even hit Madrid, he's, he's, he's sun-kissed, he's looking amazing, not just because Nando is back from vacation, but we got a very special guest in the building today, Bertrand Cooper, who's a freelance writer, and just put out a magnificent piece um, in Current Affairs. It's so damn good. It's titled, Who Actually Gets to Create Black Culture? Excuse me, Who Actually Gets to Create Black Pop Culture? A Closer Look at the Economics of Black Pop Culture reveals that most creators come from middle to upper class backgrounds while the black poor are written about, but rarely get a chance to speak for themselves. Bertrand, Nando, welcome back and welcome for the first time. Um, yeah, I appreciate you all. I'm, I'm, I was so excited to get that message and just get to, all right, this came out, what's it, went public on Sunday, dropped from behind the paywall, and then I'm talking to you in a few days, and we got to do this basically the same day. Yes. There you great. go. Yeah. The woke, the woke bros bump, you know, like the traffic is now <laughs> going to increase tremendously. <laughs> The job offers are going to become flying in. They're going to make. They're going to. You're going to be writing for the Atlantic pretty soon. Don't you worry. Uh, okay. but, well, <laughs> yeah. Do I look extra tan to you guys? Do I look extra tan? Yeah. Was what's going on? You always look tan to me. Okay. So golden, bro. Golden a, feels a good. Golden feels good. So Bertrand, feels I want to get right into this, man, because yeah. I do. You know, I, I'm not going to pretend that I did some extensive research on you. I read the piece. I reached out. I was like, "This is somebody we need to talk to." Uh, where are you from exactly? And you know, how did you even come to a place where you're writing this for current affairs? 
Yeah. So um, I was born in New Jersey. Um, it's easier to say I'm from parts of South Jersey. Anyone who's familiar mm. with. Okay. So basically parts. Philadelphia. Okay. Basically, <laughs> yeah. Basically Philadelphia. Um, I was raised out there until I was about 14. And then I moved mm. down to Florida for one to two years. And then things got uh, pretty crazy after that. Um, Y'all, you know, read a little bit of the of what I wrote, there's some uh, memoir moments in there, but the long and the short of it is, you know, my dad was in prison in North Jersey from the time I was three months old until I was 16 years old. Uh, around the time I was 14, my mom just had substance abuse issues and I started hopping around and ended up in that gray space where uh, you're kind of foster, but sometimes you're just falling homeless and you find friends, girlfriend, girlfriends, family members, you're just bumping around. Uh, bit of a crazy story about Florida. Uh, my grandmother kicked me out after I got placed with her um, and the state of Florida was going to put me in some sort of home. It didn't sound too great. I already had some friends in my second high school who said, nah, you don't want to go into one of those homes. So I left the state of Florida legally to come back to New Jersey. Never looked for me. It's actually pretty easy to just give mm -hmm. any new high school letter saying, yeah, my mom said I can uh, stay here with these people. And, uh, yeah, they just accepted. So that's kind of the story. Started from poverty, stayed pretty much poor in that part of New Jersey until I was about uh, 26, which is also around the time. Really, 2014 is when I got to be in kind of enmeshed in college. Like I had done the community college route where it was community college. And then you hook up with like a four year school after two years. But I was commuting the whole time. I was never living on campus. It was always just something I did in between working just terrible, shitty jobs that I could find around that area. Um, but then I got into graduate school around 2014. Um, and that was the first time I was with, you know, these are the students up in Rutgers who this is their plan. Uh, mm -hmm. This is really what they've been preparing for. I was in a mm -hmm. program that's supposed to be a feeder for people who are considering uh, PhD research in education theory and policy. And at that point in 2014, you know, Coates is just popping off like yeah. crazy with the 16,000 word essays that are great. He's doing, you know, a uh, case for reparations. He's doing mm -hmm. the black family in the age of mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And that fall is like the first and second wave of protests in Ferguson. Um, so this is the first time that I'm really in these small classes with students who are like full academics. Um, I'm in a I'm in a rarefied space and I have time to focus on that. And the culture at that time is really, really focused on the group that I belong to, which is, you know, people like those out in Ferguson, black, poor people. And when I say poor, I mean federal. Actually poor. Yes. yes. Yeah. Poor. You Actually are below poor. the poverty line. Uh, not, not because because you got to understand, we're going to get into this. I, I love that. I love how you broke that down. And we're going to get into this because and I want to get into the nitty gritty of the piece. But I think a lot of times black people have internalized the narrative of blackness in America. And then they think through osmosis, they can transpose the realities of some black people onto their pretty well off existence, right? Like they think just because when they turned 16, they got a beat up hatchback civic <laughs> and not, 
you know, the M3 that my homie Justin Gwelly got when I was in high school, <laughs> that they were poor. It's like, yeah. no, you're not yeah. poor. You're just not balling like dumb folks over there are. But there's like being poor is something specific, specific especially here in America where we don't help people out. Right. Yeah. So that, that existence, that not knowing where your next meal is, not knowing if you're going to be evicted next month. Those like insecurities of the basic needs of people. This is shit that people actually live. But yet certain black people have convinced themselves that just because one time they was at a party that somebody happened to shoot up and they happened to get back home safe, yeah. that their life was always being shot up. And it's like, no, there's actually people who every day <laughs> yeah. is getting shot up. Right. Like that's that's what I oh, think. is good. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, you talk to somebody out in North Philly or Camden or Trenton or mm -hmm. I mean, I'm doing the whole Northeast reference, course, but you got it out here in L.A. Um, but um, yeah, just to touch on that point, I think something I would have liked to dig into more in the piece that I didn't get to is that. A lot of great research on black economic mobility has come out through Raj Chetty out of Harvard um, over the years. Um, we're talking about sample sizes that cover 23 million plus children mm. born at the end of the 80s and also just going back. It's tremendous research. Um, but he's in a line of folks who've all looked at the black community since, say, the post-civil rights era, like immediately after. Being poor and black it would be appropriate to call it a quasi or a pseudo cast because it's so sticky that a little more than half of black Americans, I'll say black millennials who grew up in poverty are going to be third generation poor. And probably many of them are fourth and fifth generation, but the U S census on income and poverty, it really only goes back to about 1955. So mm. that's hard to verify. But if you're poor in black America, you're probably, you know, your grandparents were too. This is generational. Mm -hmm. It's basically a cast. And when you look at research that digs into it, I call it a cast for a reason. Black folks really don't marry across ca uh, class lines too often. Um, mm -hmm. By William Julius Wilson's measure and a few other folks, we are normally vying with Asians for like the least likely to really be like rich near poor within our racial groups uh, on a year by year basis. One of us is vying for the title for the least likely to live with the poor. We don't <laughs> marry across those class lines. And so poverty for us functions a little bit like race. It is sticky. Wow. It stays with us. It's multi-generational. Oh, so yeah. When you're talking about being black and poor and you're really related to these ideas of being poorer than a white person, that is not the definition of poor. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Definition of poor, mm -mm. and this is a very old definition. I'm going to call out Molly Oshansky, who is just uh, an OG from the 50s, 60s, helped standardize poverty, grew up broke, poor, Jewish in Brooklyn. Um, poverty is another way of saying, at what point do you have $1 less than you need to fulfill all the biological necessities of life? The right. moment you have $1 less than that, you're dying slowly, <laughs> but you're dying. That's the definition of poverty. If you have a shitty hatchback that you can sell to keep yourself above that line, mm. you may be hurting, you may be struggling, mm. you're not poor, you're not what the federal government is measuring. Wow. And it's important to say that just because a lot of people sometimes get hurt or feel like 
somebody who's speaking like me is dismissing their pain. It's not, I don't want to dismiss it. Being oh. right about the poverty line, that's a terrible existence. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, right. but we've got several million black children who their whole existence is beneath that, mm. period. And they're the third generation to do it. Um, if not fourth or fifth, like you just mentioned. Yeah. Nando, I, I see and, you wanted to jump no, in. No, well, I want to get into the to the premise of of your piece and I, 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 kind of the motivation that you had to write it. I mean, um, to summarize, the premise of your piece is that, you know, in the sort of, in the last several years, there's been this major push towards uh, racial diversification of our pop culture or, or our culture. You know, like, right. uh, you know, if you're kind of doing a list um, for the best books of the year and you include no black people, you're going to get criticized. And if you do a list of the best movies of the year and there's no black directors or, <laughs> you know, whatever, you'll get criticized. And like, you know, that's that's like I, like, I understand where the impulse comes from, but I think often on this show, what we discuss is that the class differences are um, completely flattened in that analysis um, of the racial diver diversification. Um, and in the piece, you actually get into the to the nitty gritty about it, because I think when when people think of inequality in America, like income inequality, they see it as like this general thing. OK, there's like the one percent and then there's the ninety nine percent. And then there's a separate thing called race and there's racial divisions or whatever. But within within racial categories in the United States, the inequality within those racial categories is just as, if not more pronounced um, as, as the overall American pie. And it, it, you know, your, your piece gets into how this push towards diversification has not included um, the, the people that are, you know, what you describe, like what you just absolutely described as poor or even near poor um um, within those racial categories. Can, can you discuss like the broad thesis of your piece and why you decided to write it? Sure. Um, I'll ground this just a little bit because I like to make this call back just with a little bit of history. I'm hey, 30. Take your time, man. We, we got time yeah. here, brother. <laughs> yeah. So I'm 33, just about everyone close to my age or a little bit older will remember that class and popular really in black discourse, it used to be prominent. People used to talk about it. We used to discuss sort of the differences between the families on the Cosby show and poor black people. Respectability politics were very prominent at the time. And well, I, well, the Jeffersons was specifically about moving on up. Yeah. Like we're, we're done with we're that good. shit. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this really distinct moment, just a little bit before Obama's uh, first term where Pew did this amazing poll where it actually asked black folks, do you think black people are still one race or have the differences between the middle class black values and the lower class black values changed so much that we're distinct? And it was very close to half saying that we're distinct. Uh, we've separated because the class chasm is that extreme. Um, and there were a lot of interesting parts where poor younger black people were more likely to think that their lives and their values had diverged. Post Obama, class kind of disappears um, from the mm. national discussion. You could speculate as to why, but for whatever mm. reason, it becomes very important to the black leadership to have a united front. Potentially that's to respond to the racism that Obama's facing from his critics. But that whole class divide just falls out 
Um, and this was always interesting to me because I grew up in the time where anyone who was a popular black leader that or a figure that like my grandparents might have liked, like an Oprah or T.D. Blakes or any of the pastors, they hated hip hop. They hated mm. black <laughs> yeah. They hated sagging <laughs> pants. They didn't subscribe to any of this. So yeah. that's the little historical grounding. I come into graduate school, like I said, in 2014. This is also around the time of the opioid crisis. Mm. I'm watching white kids talk about the opioid crisis and they're very, this is a liberal setting. This is an education program. Um, they're very conscious of their class background that they are not the same as the poor white person dealing with that. And when they speak on these statistics, because everyone here is trafficking in these statistics of suffering, that's really what they're writing about. They keep that distance. When the black and brown kids speak, everything was we, us, are my people. <laughs> and that yeah. stuck out to me mm. right away. Like I, right. it was obvious that we weren't coming from the same place. Um, that was the initial motivation to dig into this. And then really from that point on, when I was watching popular culture, I became pretty much aware that popular culture, for whatever reason, um, I mean, the reason I give is that black people are a minority in this country. Um, white Americans outnumber black Americans six to one. That whole fantasy about if you only had black friends, you'd know it's demographically impossible. That puts popular culture in the position to be the main medium between black and white people. Um, <laughs> It's just yeah. so much here. But, yeah, uh, no, I want to. I want to just read really quickly the the quote that you have from Cornell West at the top of the piece. I think is in, instructive. It says, "This is from Cornell West on on the Joe Rogan podcast that you quote." It goes, "He goes, you got one percent of the population in America who owns forty one percent of the wealth, but within the black community, the top one percent of the black folk have over seventy percent of the wealth." That, so that means you've got a lot of precious Jamals and Letitias who are told to live vicariously through the lives of black celebrities. So that it's all about representation rather than substantive transformation. You got a black president and all y'all must be free. And then you dig into the to the story of Donald Glover later in the piece, which I found very yeah. interesting to to uh, to read about. Can you can you talk about Donald Glover? Yeah. I'll, so. Just one thing to <laughs> frame that because I'm all over the place. One of the big points in there is that popular culture is made up of jobs, of people who mm -hmm. work occupations, mm -hmm. which means people apply in various ways to get those. And what a lot of people don't realize is that popular culture is a college educated industry. Yes. And it's not specific to like the super rich. It's everyone from the editor just trying to get on the ground floor who might be at the 40K level up to CEOs at HBO, you need a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. um, it's a yeah. college-educated field. When I started looking into- Preferably folk, from an elite university. Yes. Very much preferably from an elite university. I think uh, probably Waz you know, had this experience when you are interacting, and I'm sure you've had the experience as well, but just with uh, Hispanics who have, who have made it. Uh, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> yeah, where you're having a conversation with someone, they find out about your background. They think you have a whole lot in common. Well, from 2014 on and with Oscars so white and everything like that, and these diversity pushes, 
everyone was trying to be more woke, trying to read more things by black creators, watch more things by black creators. In a college environment, you don't meet many uh, people from my background. At the moment, people no. hear about the black poverty um, and that I am the, you know, more or less the embodiment of these statistics that they are very concerned with. They're like, oh, have you read this person? Have you read this person? I started looking into those people, especially because I also was, you know, getting interested in writing. And you kind of look up people who have success to figure out what's the blueprint. What do I have in common? What things might be in my favor? What things will hold me back? And it was just very obvious that most of the folks that people were recommending to me, most of the people who were being celebrated, they were college educated, which I knew from studying education theory and policy. A bachelor's degree is heavily tied to class background. Mm -hmm. um, the old statistic going back to Obama is just, you know, only about one out of every 10 high schoolers who, again, meet that federal poverty line beneath what they need to sustain themselves biologically. Only about one in 10 is going to graduate uh, with a bachelor's degree one day. Um, a fraction of that might go to graduate school. Um, and you so, and then, of course, you kids just keep breaking it down more where it's yeah. like might go to grad school, might go to Stanford, might go to Harvard. might Like you keep <laughs> once yeah. you start making it more and more elite, obviously, the amount of people from that background, it's become completely diluted. And, you know, I guess and I can speak to this just personally, anecdotally. Um, I can remember. The first time I went away, it, college was revelatory for two reasons. One, um, growing up in New York City, we don't have trailer park white people. <laughs> Every white person is firmly blue collar working class. Um, talking about both parents is working class type of people or better. There's nothing underneath that in Queens, in Brooklyn, in all of these places. Like, you, ne I never, ever, ever met a white person who was doing worse than me. Not one. Never. Yeah. <laughs> so my first day that I moved in in college, I moved in with some kids from central Pennsylvania. And I think I unpacked about six pairs of sneakers. And I remember my one roommate, I'll never forget it, my man Mike Reichert. He said, what you got all them shoes for? This was a white boy. <laughs> from central Pennsylvania. And I was like, bro, I need like four times as many as these. What are you talking about? <laughs> right. So that was the first time I encountered a white person who like saw materialism and like, they just had a different view on it. than literally every single white person I'd ever met before that. Right. Like they're yeah, like re yeah, super revelatory. Like their relationship with things was just different than my own. And I was black. I was like, damn. And then of course the town of Altoona, it was desolate, you know, whites and all of that, like destitute whites, excuse me. And I was like, damn, like I ain't never met white people who had shit more fucked up than me and my family. That was a one. <laughs> then two, the black people that I met in college, I kind of hated. Not going to lie. <laughs> I, I hated them. I was like these, <laughs> like these fake fancy Negroes. Like I don't like the, like but the thing that kept saying to myself, I was like, I would never hang out with these kids on my block. Like if they lived on my block, I wouldn't hang out with them. They were just, they were so obviously different. It was so obvious that college self-selects for a certain type of black person. Like I learned that one and two in my first week of college. It's like, these are, these people are different. They're so, different than the people I know. And I didn't grow yeah, up poor at yeah. all, but like they were just different kinds of people. 
So that's a great segue into the like Nando actually trying to make me say something more concrete on Donald Glover. <laughs> just to do yeah. this example, Donald Glover is one of the most you know celebrated black creatives that were my age. Donald Glover grew up in what would be defined as a solidly, solidly middle class home. Uh, you know, mom's a daycare worker. Um, dad was ex-military, got a job in the post office, and they were getting cleared to foster kids, really the sort of kids that are from my experience. Um, went to a performance arts high school, mostly surrounded by white kids, and then went to New York Tisch School of the Arts. And anyone who remembers Donald Glover before he grew out and did the whole uh, Neo-Frederick Douglass look. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, will remember <laughs> that, uh, all of his early interviews, you know, he was a black nerd. I would describe himself. Um, he tells stories. And these are not cool. I'm not. You'll you know, I mean, you'll both be familiar with this, I'm sure. But um, the homophobia that he describes experiencing for appearing like a white black guy, it's not cool. But it was an important part of his experience that he was mostly surrounded by white kids who were upset in a lot of his interviews that he wasn't blacker and when he was around black kids, they were also upset that he wasn't, you know, real black. Mm -hmm. So he's got this middle-class background. He's not, you know, he's not <laughs> listening to gangster rap. He's not on drill or anything like that. And that is really what is making him famous. He's a black nerd. He's relating to mm -hmm. white people who relate to nerd culture, which was predominantly white. But when he has a chance to do a passion project, he chooses to do Atlanta which heavily, heavily features this impoverished black experience and everything that America relates to it, whether that's hip hop, police pressure, ghettos, the hood, gun violence, it's all there. And when he gets interviewed about this, he says, you know, in the New York Times that if you want to be successful as a black person, you have to sell the black culture. But it's important yeah. to point out that there are many black communities and there is more than one black culture, despite what anyone's thinking, we're not all responsible for part for creating what I'll call the uh, hip hop culture, which really to me is black poor culture. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't all participate in that, but that's the one he had to sell. And he wasn't coming from that background. Again, he was coming from solidly middle class. He got his first job an intern. I mean, not really an internship, but he got it with Tina Fey. And he got that job because when she got the go ahead to do a diversity initiative and, you know, she was being told, hey, if you can find a black or a brown person, we won't even make that a part of the uh, the show's budget. That's just a freebie. Right. She only selected from college educated black people. And by picking that as the filter, she's getting bachelor's degrees, which, again, is tied to being middle class and. Donald Glover's age matters here because right around the same time, I mean, maybe a little bit younger than me, uh, Jared Carmichael is coming up in stand-up, doesn't have that experience, is clearly immensely talented, but he's not going to college. So his name isn't going to be on the pile with Donald Glover's application. And yet yeah. now at this point, we can see like both talented brothers, both great, do amazing stuff. But how they got there is very different based on their backgrounds. Jared Carmichael came out to L.A. out of high school. If anyone's seen his like um, kind of the family documentary that he did on HBO, he was coming out of the hood. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and what I mean, and what I loved, because, again, this is something 
I want to pat ourselves on the back here very quickly, um, Bertrand, if we can, because this is something we talk about all the time. It's, okay, don't tell me you're going to get, in your diversity initiative, don't tell me you're going to pluck another Negro out of Yale and Harvard. That's not diversity. Those yeah. people basically, regardless of their freaking background, and I think the Obamas are the perfect example of this. Yes, they're black. Yes, but what they are, first and foremost, are fucking elites. Period. Yeah. That's full stop, period. That's how you get Tim Geithner. That's how you get Larry Summers. That's how you get all of these monkeys. They're elites, first and foremost. So stop talking to me about the diversity that you want to tell if you got somebody from Goldman Sachs who's black. That's not diversity, right? And what I love about what you said in the piece was like, the crazy shit is nobody will ever question what Donald Glover is doing with poor black people art because he's black, even though that motherfucker has never been poor. But with a white person, we automatically take the posture of, yo, what the fuck? Are you... Are you entitled to talk about this? Yeah. So, and you said something that was really relevant to this. Um, and again, <laughs> I don't like the flack, you know, the narrow box that black people get put on where there's only one way to be black. But it is relevant that, as you said, you know, certain people, they wouldn't have been hanging out with you in New York. They wouldn't have been on that block. They wouldn't have been in that room. Donald Glover is one of these dudes who would not have been in that room. No, he would not have been no, he, he certainly wouldn't have been in the poorest section where shit gets really wild. Mm. And that's relevant because that turns him into an outside observer. That makes Atlanta an artistic ethnography, a very middle class, educated person who has access to some black rooms because of his skin color got to kind of see how those folks live, but don't confused for a second don't imagine that if we gave black people in that area mm. the opportunity to tell their own stories that it would come out looking like glover's version glover's version in my opinion sells very well to middle class whites because you know people always like especially liberals like to they like to mention how race is a construct and i take that seriously but if race really is a construct well, we got to look at the other features that are developing you as a person. If race is this thin construct, so you're a human living in America, exposed to middle class life, exposed to this whole culture. If race isn't really real, then probably those forces are going to make you very similar to other humans yes. in the yes. same experience. Yes. <laughs> Donald Glover grew up in a way very similar to other middle class Americans. And surprise, surprise, when he internalizes his observations of poor black experience, it mm. resonates as art with middle class <laughs> people. I, you know, rest in peace, King Von, but if King Von had quick screenwriting instead of uh, hip hop, I'm not sure his version, his motivations, the values in his art would appeal. Maybe they would, but I'm not sure it would be this easy imbibe where <laughs> there's nothing challenging <laughs> There's yeah. nothing challenging in Donald Glover's work uh, for somebody who comes from that value set, which there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with that value set, but it's just. 
I, I, I hate to pick on Donald Glover and I I I I I also I, I genuinely don't subscribe to the idea that you have that you can only write about your exact experience and whatever. Like I hate that trend in popular in the sort of liberal culture these days where it's like um like you cannot write an Asian character if you are not a you know, whatever. Like that I think that that's contrary totally contrary to to art. Uh but on on the other hand, uh, it, it strikes me as the, you know, reading your, you know, I go back and forth between a sort of charitable interpretation of the of the diversity push in in elite media spheres, where it's like it's a well-meaning thing, but it's like, you know, they they're picking from the you know the Harvard kids because that's like what they know, and you know that's just what they have access to, and they they submit the best writing samples and whatever. Yeah. Um, but the, the sort of more insidious interpretation is that there's a sort of laundering going on, um, a, a sort of laundering of the guilty conscience of of the white middle class or upper middle class uh, liberal by a lot of this diversification push in which they they can kind of, um, I don't know, uh, uh, you know, observe the safe black guy uh, or the safe black guy's version of it. And it, it, it allows them to feel like they're doing something. They're doing something good for this thing without actually ever having to do anything good for this thing. Does, does it make sense what I'm saying? That it's like, yeah. that, that it's like a way to sort of, um, yeah, to, to launder the guilt of, of that, that a lot of white liberals feel about, you know, the, the, the racism and oppression that exists in this country. Yeah. Um, so 100%, it is a way to alleviate that guilt. And there's a lot of times I've related this to, it seems, you know, really far afield, but environmentalism and the idea of recycling. Um, yeah. Recycling is very simple and we adopted it very quickly. And many people, um, for one reason or another, are convinced that by moving their hand like three inches to the right or the left after they buy nearly the same product and support the very same industry and infrastructure. But by doing that, they have taken themselves out of the guilty party because they've been conscious in some way of the problem. And I don't really know what that's worth or how much better you are than the next person who just chucks it right in the trash. But I guess that's something. But the, the point is that that minimum amount of consciousness and that very small action is enough to assuage what I'll call guilt to, you know, see what you're saying, Nando. Um, for a lot of people, you go to the bookstore and you can find someone. Again, I, I want to go back to that race is a construct. Well, let's take that seriously. So I can go and purchase a book by a black person who went, who has two working middle to upper middle class parents from the Northeast who is familiar with Northeast or, or is the son and daughter is the son or daughter of like a, like a Kenyan prince of a know? Kenyan prince. Yeah. Simply by buying their book. I I've, I've done it. I'm conscious of the problem. That's why I bought the book. I did a small action. The book is now on my bookshelf. I maybe even read it and I quote it, but I didn't really dig anything and nothing in my life really changed. Um, a good example of this, especially for, you know, our generation a little bit younger is this the idea of like blue cities, you know, people are aware of how much they want diversity. And so you have this idea like, OK, I'll go to college in a place near black people where I'll have black peers in school 
And then I'll move to a city where I can get a job that's really into diversity. And then I'll have black coworkers. And somehow I will, you know, more or less opt out of the system the rest of Americans live in just by making these choices. But they never really understand that college and the current, you know, the financial system that undergirds how mobility works here. You're not you're not opting out of that just by moving to a place with people yeah. black and brown skin. But they think they can. And it does. One way to say it is it alleviates guilt. Another way is like it lets you not think about it. Yeah. Because you can see other black people around you. You see them on campus. You see their faces on the books. Hulu's giving you the woke watch list. Um, you know, just go through these and, you know, you'll be in touch. You'll, you'll be in touch with black. You won't be racist. We, I we promise put, you won't be racist. We want to try to get, because, you know, obviously we're on the same side of this argument. And if I can, I will try to espouse some of the, you know, some of the feelings, because that's all they are is feelings. Um, yes. As it pertains to the black bourgeoisie and what they feel their proximity is to the most downtrodden black people in this country. I do want to talk about the Dave Chappelle quote that you put in there because it's a very honest one. And I love Chappelle. I, of course, he's yeah. he's very honest about this. And I'm because I'm going to get to the black bourgeoisie. But Ch Chappelle says this. He says, quote, you know, when I was growing up, I was probably about eight years old. And at the time, we were living in Silver Spring. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Common misconception about me in D.C. A lot of people think I'm from the quote unquote hood. That's not true. But I never bothered to correct anybody because I wanted the streets to embrace me. As a matter of fact, I kept it up as a ruse. Like sometimes I'll hang out with rappers like Nas and them. And these motherfuckers <laughs> start talking about the projects. Yo, it was wild in the PJs, yo. And I'll be like... <laughs> Word, nigga, word. But I don't know. I don't have any idea. Dave Chappelle. Yeah. yeah. Fucking king. Uh, yeah. Fucking king. It's, it's just, you know, and that's one idea, right? Which, again, which I think just happens to be the truth. And then you'll have people who will say, basically, they'll be like, and I don't want to sound glib here, but um, follow me here. Folks will be like, Skip Gates, Beer Summit, George Floyd. Skip Gates, come on. <laughs> they call the cops on him at his own crib. <laughs> Skip Gates, George Floyd. is It's the same. What would you say to those people, stupid as they might be? <laughs> so, you know, uh, I want to give credit to <laughs> credit where it's due. You know, 10 years before I'm even born. William Julius Wilson, if you're not familiar with him, please, please, please go see this man's work. He helped inspire The Wire. I hope that brings you in. He's also yeah. uh, basically wrote my uh, the core parts of my thesis, again, a decade before I was born. But he tried to bring up how class was affecting black people post-civil rights in impoverished areas. Class was affecting them more than race really was. And the rebuke that he received about that was, if all black people are suffering, why focus on the black poor? <laughs> if all black people are suffering, why? And in his words, and he is a he is a gentleman, especially for somebody who came from dire Jim Crow era in the mm. Pennsylvania rural poverty. He really could have had a chip on his shoulder, but he is a he is a gentleman scholar. And he just kind of, you know, kept it moving. 
But um, they told him, why focus on that? They almost skipped all of his emphasis on like how poor black people were living. When I hear people attempt to, you know, relate the George Floyd situation to a Skip Gates to being how <laughs> it's just it's it's so hard, I guess. And I can imagine you have a very specific um ideas about this because i'm looking at you right now you're a handsome brother you know um yeah. you got a little jesse williams vibe going to you <laughs> i would say but like you know like you're a light-skinned cat right and you For just sure. described your upbringing as decidedly not what people think light-skinned people's lives are like yeah. right which is not to say that girls didn't like you x y and yeah. z because that's the type of shit people get jealous about but like you literally grew up poor, right? Yeah. And I so I would imagine when somebody like you is making these arguments, you know, I could see a certain type of dark-skinned black bourgeoisie talk about getting pulled over in their Lexus being the end of the world. So, Basically, that's yeah. on par with destitution, <laughs> getting so, pulled over in their bends. I want to, you know, I want to pull out a few things. First off, most of the time, they ain't going to say it to my face. If I get invited <laughs> to a panel, no one is going to have the gall nah, to say don't. that these things are really equivalent. But they do talk the way you're saying as if it's all in the same family. So that's good enough. It's all oppression. So it's related. Um, that's one thing. The other part of this is. This. People may, I hope, remember Between the World and Me with, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates, mm -hmm. uh, ta uh, The whole premise of that book, really, his main argument, because he grew up middle class, too, very much so. Um, and he's always been honest about that. He will correct people who say, oh, didn't you grow up poor? He's very honest. But his whole premise was because a friend of his, Prince, um, who was the son of college educated woman who had done very well because he was very wealthy simply because that individual was eventually murdered in the same way that George Floyd was all black people, regardless of class, because they can suffer some of these same fates. They're in this together. Mm. And there's a few problems with that. I hope they're obvious, but if you want to get in, really yeah, yeah let's get into it let's get into it yeah. let's say that you have the option to live george floyd's life you know when he's going to die you're told at the beginning and you know what he's going to go through each day of his life he's going to go through hell and on the other hand you could choose to have a life like coach's friend where you're going to die it's going to be terrible but the days leading up to that are not filled with poverty they're not filled with violence. I'm not saying that either of these men got what, you know, got a life that was worth living. They shouldn't have been murdered. But I frame it this way because everyone knows that if your time was ticking down and you knew it, you would never choose to be broke for 40 years and just act like, well, I, I, I'm gonna die at 40 anyway. So I'm gonna yeah. die at 40. It really doesn't matter if I'm no. living under constant assault and most of my family is in prison and every day I'm oscillating between 
uh, fleeing violence or fleeing hunger, it really doesn't matter. Sure, it's nice to live in a $600,000 home, but I really wouldn't care. There's no big difference. You know which life is better. And those days mattered. The days that they lived, what they went through mattered. So that's one thing when people just act like it's all a wash. The other part is like, I want to relate this to the other marginalized groups within a marginalized group. Black women were told to focus on the big picture. If all black people are suffering, why focus on black women's issues within the community? LGBTQ black people were told the very same thing. If all black people are suffering, why focus specifically on your issues within Mm, the community? mm, You're preaching. So, you know, why are we doing this to poor blacks? Why continue to acknowledge that we don't want to do that to black women, to black trans people, to black gay people? Why do we continue to do this to poor blacks and say, we don't got to focus on you? We're all suffering when we've acknowledged that there needs to be there needs to be an acknowledgement of the separation of that struggle. Nando, I cut you off. You was about to say something. No, no, no. I mean, I it's find it in this this whole discussion interesting because you know the my 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 work experience and all that stuff is is more focused in the in in sort of U.S. Latino population. I worked at Univision yeah. and things like that, and and um, it's 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 this dynamic that you're describing is almost more pronounced in 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 what's called like the the U.S. Latino population, which is kind of which is even an even faker it's, it's construct. Than, construct. Yeah. yeah, it's even faker um, than, than black. Yeah. <laughs> Um, like, because 70% of, of what are called us Latinos come from Mexico of Mexican Americans, like Mexican descent. Um, but if you look at the upper, upper echelons of, of culture and, and who produces it for quote unquote Latinos, it's often Cuban Americans. It's often Colombian Americans. It's often the Mexican Americans are not that. And it's usually the, the scions of, you know, what, what we would describe here is oligarchs, right? Um, mm. And and they use a lot of the a lot of this language, um, a lot of the flattening of the class differences uh, between them to their, you know, in in cynical ways. Often, you know, like I, often when you're like when the say for example, like the situation in Venezuela was getting bad, you get these like Venezuelan uh, children of the oligarchy being like you white person can't tell me about venezuela you know because look you know i'm from you know like i'm from there it's like you're the owner of that country you know like like, literally the owner of that country you know like you have nothing in common with a you know someone who works in the california central valley picking uh picking oranges or whatever um you know from guatemala you know like it's like those, those worlds couldn't be farther apart but in the in the sort of media construct and in in the diversification quotas, the child the child of a Venezuelan oligarch f- satisfies the quota perfectly fine, you know. Whereas mm. you know, and they would never hire um, you know the the child of a of a Guatemalan uh, you know orange picker, um, and it's just it's just so pronounced and so obvious, and 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 like I don't know, I, I it's just it's something that I see so so much, and. And the discussion around it is so fraught and people can just can't see like the very simple reality that like the, the, the poorest amongst amongst us in every class are excluded from culture. You know, like there, there are not many white poor people also doing culture. Like, it's just no, not, you know, of course not. Um, no. you know, very, very few. 
um, like you can put on your piece, like, you know, all the people, you know, half of the comedy writers in, in Hollywood uh, went to went Harvard, the Harvard Lampoon at the Harvard <laughs> Lampoon like within Harvard, a smaller, a smaller thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just so much in, in, in the American kind of race reductionist moment that we're kind of we're seeing right now, which has become so hegemonic in amongst liberal circles. It just completely erases um these very obvious dynamics and 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 it just it i don't know it just drives me crazy and and the reason why it drives me crazy specifically is because the point of race is to reinforce the class structure like that's the whole point of it right and then these fucking blacks and hispanics go out and do, they like actually do it like actually say no we need to flatten the race thing ignore the class struggle um even though the entire point of doing that um race reductionism is to do exactly that that's what the masters wanted to do like it's this weird it's so fucking insidious how it works but you know we can talk about that but i want to i want to ask you specifically Bertrand, because Joy Ann Reed is, is sort of a whipping boy <laughs> or whipping girl on this show for me specifically, because, you know, you talk about Coates's book and I think Joy Ann Reed is very instructive of this because I think why this is important, because what ends up happening is that these people with these outsized media platforms tend to speak to things that are very personal to them, right? Like, Tanahasi's book is personal to his own experience. It's not empirical in the data. It's personal. And so when Joanne Reed goes on MSNBC and Joanne Reed, fucking millionaire, is talking about what black people need, that shit is a major problem because she's speaking specifically towards her own needs. And yeah. she can say, I'm black. I know what black people need, but it's like, bro, no, you, you can't speak to the, the struggle of black people struggling. So, so now uh, just because it's useful, because I mean, I, I just, I also want to tell you both, I enjoying the, I am enjoying just <laughs> this conversation so much writing and having unique perspective. Like people think like, oh, that's great. You have something to market. And it's like, yeah, that's true. But while you're writing this unique perspective, you can't talk to anybody because they haven't heard what you're trying to <laughs> what you're trying to put right. out there. So I really appreciate this. Um, something that I think is useful is like when we're talking about these struggles, whether it's the uh, Hispanic, you know, struggle and we're, or the black struggle, and we're talking about the race level. Most of these folks will acknowledge they do it in the Times, they do it in all these different places. Of course, class matters. They'll put class at the end. They'll always say things like. This affects, you know, poor black people the most. They know that they have to pay lip service to the horror of those people's lives. Um, here's the thing. What can you point to that you are doing that will get a poor black person in a position to speak for themselves? Um, it's really that simple. And I could say the same for uh, the Hispanic community. Okay. You want to speak for Hispanic people, but you also acknowledge classes. And what are you doing? What have you done? Are you collaborating with poor Hispanic communities? Mm. Um, 
Are you elevating? I mean, we could go back to just, you know, old clips of Malcolm X asking questions like, why is it whenever there's a black organization supposed to be helping black people? Um, seems like wealthy white liberals always put themselves in, you know, kind of VP spots. I could say the same thing in each of our own communities that we've represented here, where it's like, you know, you're telling me to worry about you know, the big picture, put up this united front. You're acting like, you know, my spokesperson. What are you doing to make me a part of that process? Let's just. No, 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 Bertrand, you, you don't get it. We just need a couple <laughs> more Oprah's and Jay-Z's and it's going to be yeah. fixed. A couple more Puff Daddies and this black thing is going to be out of here, brother. <laughs> and that's really kind of the interesting thing. I mean, up until up until COVID, uh, you know, the number of black people living in poverty was getting smaller. Um, mm. But not really because black poor black people were getting out of poverty it was because the populations around them whether through growth rate living longer than poor black people certainly do or immigration from black country it was because of those factors that the number was getting smaller mm. but we're getting you know we're getting a lot of a lot of people who relate more to the oprah's that's closer right. to their, their current well, i think that I think that Americans are very much taught that um, time happens and then progress happens, you know, hmm. that it's just a, as the years go forward, this year is, you know, better than the last and there's progress happens. And like, um, and I think that's especially true um, uh, when, when discussing race, um, you know, there's a kind of feeling that, um, you know, it's better, it's better to be a black person today than in 1960 before pre pre civil rights. And while it is true that in the upper echelons of culture and that there's more, you know, uh, black movies and that that it's, you know, you can't you can't be an overt racist on TV anymore or in the news or anything like that. Um, the the conditions of like the average working class black person today are not are not necessarily better than the average working class black person in 1960. Certainly in the South, maybe that's like a separate issue. But like, you know, in, in the 1960, there was a large black industrial middle class. And with the industrialization, which decimated the, the black working class, just like it decimated the working class in America writ large, um, you know, conditions in, in um, amongst the, the black poor have gotten considerably worse. Um, so there's this like there's this weird dichotomy going on in which. You know, there's this feeling of racial progress, but then you look at things like, you know, schools are more segregated and schools and neighborhoods are more segregated today than they were, um, you know, 50 years ago. And, you know, like it, there's this weird kind of thing where the upper echelons of culture and polite society have become much more attuned to discussing race. They don't say crazy shit anymore. Uh, you know, it's like they actually say the opposite. They, they, they use quite radical yourself, language. Lando, I'm, I'm still speaking crazy. Nah, I know, just... I know. <laughs> I know you should see our, you should see our tech, you should see our tech history. Uh, <laughs> um, but that, that's, that's the kind of dynamic that we exist in today. I feel like in which like that, the, that there is a, that there is no kind of material analysis of any of this shit. It's all purely about, it's all purely kind of window dressing and and symbolic rather than actually material. So, you know, I'm hoping that your viewers, everyone who knows you, anyone who's even met you on the street is going to go read the current affairs article. But just for the folks 
who haven't. Um, there is a certain credentialing experience or a credentialing process for real blackness. And I should put that in quotes, um, especially if you want to talk to the public. My own background coming, being, you know, the child of somebody who went to prison, being the child of somebody who was homeless, who was a substance abuser, going through poverty, going through uh, really foster care systems, all this starving. I have to say all that because if I just say I struggled, people right. are going to come at me. The bar is too low. They'll be easy. It'll be too easy for them to say, oh, me and Bertrand were really on the same plane because we've kind of struggled. <laughs> I had to tell all these lower details just to make the stakes so high that they the that only, unassailable, right? Only, yeah. The only black people who might try to question those credentials are people who have that experience, and you're going to find there aren't many. So, wow. <laughs> in uh, there's many who are alive, but there's not many who are. Um, who went to graduate school? Who went yeah, to graduate school? I have school? two. I have two two questions. Um, before we get you out of here, so first. Because people are going to want to know, because we haven't done a really, because that's not what this episode was about, but like a really thorough job about explaining what you mean by uh, transcending the class or station from which you came from. Now, what you're saying is if somebody grew up like you and made it to Harvard, their credentialing now, it's like, bro, you've kind of, you've escaped. Mm -hmm. You're not so if somebody if any polar wants to hire you, she's not really picking from that poor black lower class anymore. Would you say that to be correct? Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. so so basically, just to clarify, y'all, like just because you grew up in the Jacks or your mama was in Section 8, or one time y'all used the off-color money like we had to do back in the days. Because I remember when it wasn't a card where you put the code in. It was literally, the money was different colors, okay? <laughs> like, it was like orange and purple and shit. Um, once you've gone to Harvard or Goldman or whatever, you're out of here. Stop calling yourself lower class, blah, blah, blah. You've ascended and you no longer get to carry that badge. Um, once you've basically gotten a proper college degree, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, poverty is strange um, as an identity. Um, you know, <laughs> you can't change how it shaped you, but uh, yeah, I don't deal with those things anymore, um, which is kind of a mixed bag because it's certainly... Uh, <laughs> it's kind of like how you said when you went to college, you didn't necessarily uh, click with all the black people you were meeting there. Um, minus that, you know. Uh, <laughs> Do you feel guilty? Nah, I don't feel Why guilty. would the fuck no. would you? This is the bullshit nah, that I'm That's a common, that's a thing that ain't happening. No, people, people talk say, about survivor's remorse and what it happens no, all with anything. Anyone who survived cancer feels it. <laughs> I still get texts from the homies who are like, who will tell me that they tell their friends that their shitty job about what birds doing because it makes them happy that someone got out. I don't feel guilty. I feel incredibly grateful. I feel yes. yeah. so much gratitude that I often don't know uh, really how to express that um, because it's, it's, it's luck 
to me that, you know, I happen to be in an economy where the skills that they're looking for happen to be the academic skills that I am strong at. That's mm -hmm. has nothing to do with me. Blessing, right. It's a blessing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the second thing that I wanted to say, because and I want to set this up for y'all, because, you know, this is just something that I've become attuned to just more and more. Right. So. The dude who wrote Moonlight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Barry Jenkins. Oh, uh, no, Barry Jenkins directed it. Yeah, it was yeah. uh Frell. Yeah, I, I forget his name. I should say it. Let me fucking okay. let me look this up. <laughs> let me stop being all dismissive. Uh Terrell Alvin McCraney. Yeah. Okay, Terrell Alvin That's McCraney. an interesting okay. story. Okay, so the dude who wrote Moonlight, Terrell Alvin McCraney, he did fresh air. And so, you know, I'm walking. He did a fresh air with Terry Gross, uh, NPR, yeah. whatever. So I'm walking to the, the grocery salon store. of liberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 yeah. it's like nice people, liberalism, whatever shit. It's your yeah. run of the mill liberalism. And, and I like Terry. Like she's, you know, yeah, she's yeah. a nice, well-meaning liberal. And I think she asks good questions a lot of times too, which is why I like listening to her. Anyway, she's talking to this homie. And he's talking about how he sort of felt lost after Moonlight because he's getting all these opportunities. And, you know, I went to the Vanity Fair party after winning the Oscars and I just didn't feel that great. And I felt out of place. And like, you know, like even though I won an Oscar and I'm in demand and I could get basically whatever fucking job I want and this, <laughs> I still got to deal with code switching and microaggressions. And I literally had to turn the shit off because I'm just like, yo, fam. You from Liberty City, my boy. Like, you from the mud. Do you feel me? Like, to pretend that these problems are the same as the problems that you used to deal with just kind of, like, make me want to scream. And I'm just like, how do these folks get lost in translation? And then, of course, and I might have mentioned this on Woke Bros before. I just want to use this as a second example to round this out. The New York Times does a pop culture podcast with two writers, Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham. Like, on their beats, when it comes to movie criticism and tech writing and all of that, these people are brilliant at what they do on their beats. On the topic of blackness, they make me sick sometimes. I'm not going to lie. And these are people I have the utmost respect for the work they do. But I'm listening to them one time talk about that shit with the New York Times dude that said nigger to the, the kid on the trip to South America yeah. where he's yeah, explaining yeah, like, him. yo, there's white yeah. people that'll say nigger to you. Yeah. Like, and you gotta be ready for that type of shit. And he got fired for just saying the word. And I had to listen to these two homies talk about, they basically said, this is exactly what they said. We couldn't even like, you know, have fun with our friends and talk about the two book deals that we just landed. And, you know, our great <laughs> jobs at the New York Times, we couldn't even enjoy these things with our people because we had to think about this white guy. He said nigger to some black kids. And we just, and if you could have heard them, they, they basically NPR'd nigger. And I was just like, yo, what is happening? Like, but I just want to know, Bert, like, what do we say to those people? Because obviously they literally feel this way. Like, they, they obviously feel like they're suffering and being oppressed by the white man when they were just hearing about the white man saying nigga. Like, just hearing <laughs> it, just hearing about it. Yeah, they, not, didn't hear it. Not, they didn't hear they it. They didn't hear it. They weren't even present. Yeah. Just hearing about yeah. it 
turned them into like the most miserable, they're suffering people. What do we, how do you even say, what do you say to that? I want to hop on uh, Terrell real quick because something yes. that I'm really curious about, um, and I don't know that this will be also, a great Also, we got to say he's a gay guy too, which, which matters as far as when we're talking about the oppression Olympics thing that we're doing. You know, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping this writing and, you know, talking with y'all and if I get to talk to anybody else, one of the things I'm hoping we'll do is just alert people. I, <laughs> there, me and Terrell likely will never be in a room. Um, I would love to be because honestly, I don't know what the consensus is among black people who come from that background. I know what I think. I know what you're telling me about what Terrell thinks. I, I'm genuinely curious what every other uh, black person who comes from that background and then manages to make it into this sphere, what they think about what's going on. Cause I really don't know. I don't know if may, maybe I'm, when this consensus emerges, if we're ever lucky enough to have a critical mass of black creators from poverty, Maybe I'm the weird one. Maybe I'm the only one who's upset about it. Maybe everyone else, not to uh, be too dismissive, but maybe everyone else is going to drink the Kool-Aid on what's currently happening and just be like, yeah, I actually agree with all this. Even though I grew up, you know, uh, dodging bullets and poverty, eating, you know, toothpaste sandwiches and what Look have you. Roaches out the cereal box? Like, yeah. I mean, that was pretty uh, traumatic. It sounds pretty traumatic. But the thing is, we don't know because the system hasn't allowed us to mm. get a critical mass of those black people right. in the room. So I would like to know that. In terms of what I would say to the person who doesn't have that experience, but is you know doing the whole wilting flower thing just because they heard somebody say nigga, uh, I would say like, you know, just make sure you let everyone know that you're sharing your opinion with, that that opinion in part is from your background and your class. You really don't speak for the rest of the black people. I, oh, thank you. I, I have a, it's, I wouldn't tell you to shut up. I would just say, make sure you're not implying that you're mm. writing for all the black people and that everyone, and in my case, that you're not saying me and all the other people uh, from poverty, whether it's like urban hood or just rural poverty, we're not all like, mm. if I had heard them say me, I'd have been crying too. You know, because... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's one of those things where, like, I remember the first time I was at Made in America Music Festival in Philadelphia, and it's basically mostly populated by the college kids from the Big Five, Drexel, Temple, you know, Villanova, all the shit that's in Philly, and black people. But it's mostly the young white kids that's populating that festival, mostly. Sure. And, you know, YG gets up there. And he performs my nigga. And he's like, my nigga, my nigga, my motherfucking nigga. And it's the whole fucking festival. All the freaking crackers included are just screaming it. Right? Like, just like, my nigga, my nigga, my nigga, my nigga. They are loving it. Okay. I personally found it to be hilarious. I thought yeah. it was one of the funniest things. Like, do you people, like, not it's only really just funny. YG, really but, like, funny. the kids. Like, do you not realize how ridiculous this all is? <laughs> this yeah. is insane, what we're doing. But I recognize that I would never tell people this is how black people feel about it. 
You yeah. feel me? Like I recognize that that's specific to me. I have a dark, twisted sense of humor, but I would never get up there and say, yo, black people, this is how you should feel. Or black people going to feel like this about it. Black people going to laugh. And I do know for a fact that a lot of these things like microaggressions and, you know, trigger warnings and all of that shit to the people in my neighborhood, to my aunt who and, and uncles and my mom who grew up in a third world country in Haiti, that shit don't mean nothing. Some fucking white person following them around the store they they literally would not think about it twice. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I want to jump on that, uh, which is just, yeah, agreed. I can't go around like my, you know, the black side of my family or friends and start mentioning any of the people I read to write these pieces. They don't know who the fuck any of those people are. They don't have a clue. Never heard of them. Um, that's, yeah. I mean, really what you're saying, they just don't, no, well, that is. Well, I think like what Waz brings up with the YG thing, uh, because one thing that you point out in your piece is that music is the one exception to, mm-hmm. you know, black working class culture has, you know, like it, the music is, is populated by 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 poor uh, yeah. uh, black people. Why? Why is that? I don't know why. You know what it is? The barrier entry is really low. Um, I was watching a yeah. Vince Staples Nice. Uh, interview the other day. I love Vince Staples. Yeah. Um, not just as a rapper, but as a thinker. And he was like, the barrier to entry is low, meaning if you want to play the guitar, that shit takes time to learn how to play it. Um, if you can't carry a note, then you just just will never be able to do that. Like, producer, like, arrange music, whatever, learning how to read music, all of it, like, that shit takes time. And you might need somebody to teach you that shit. With rapping, you can literally just teach yourself this shit. And all you're doing is talking and telling your own story. And so the barrier to entry to being a rapper specifically is very low. And I bet you it's not the same for producers. I bet you if we looked up guys who made beats, people like Just yeah, Blaze, yeah. Timbaland, Pharrell, you name it, it's Will I Am. As, it's like Donald Glover. It's the same yes. thing. Yes. Yes, the cl- producer is when you look at the class of producers, is nowhere close to a bunch of cats in the projects because to buy a fucking MPC, that shit costs thousands of bucks. It was like, you know, they're like th- that's the separation in all of it. Rapper, you just literally you heard the song, you taped it off the radio, you practice in your room by yourself, you learn how to fucking rap, and the rest of it's history, you know. I mean, I yeah, I want to emphasize what you said, like the rapper, the musician who we're talking about, that is one person within the entire team that it takes to get something out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of that team, the producer, oh the editor, the person Dude. who owns the building, the label Dude. people, Dude. we're talking about, again, Dude. bachelor's degree. Dude, let me tell you something. I, you know, I got a lot of homies that work at record labels. And I remember a homie introduced me to a nice white lady. She was nice. Cool. Cool white lady. Didn't think nothing about it. Didn't think (laughs) nothing about it. I said, yo, what does that lady do for y'all? The homie said, president of urban marketing. Meaning this (laughs) woman runs the marketing for black music for that whole company. I was like, this woman is marketing black music? Well, I mean, if you take this rock seriously, the alternative would be a black person from the Ivy League. That would that would really be that would be the switch. 
And that um, do be the alternative most of the time, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I there's just so much here. I I appreciate y'all letting me like just ramble through this. Yeah, I love it. No, no, no. It's um, honestly, it's been it's been great. I mean, I, I really encourage everyone to to seek out the yeah, piece in, in in current affairs. I promise uh, I'm polished on the page. I I, I swear. No, Check it out. <laughs> you're pretty polished. You're pretty polished on the mic, dude. Don't worry. And and, um, and and it's it's not just you know up here. A lot of times we just talk and we making jokes and whatever. But like if you read this brother's piece, he's giving you the facts and the figures, the just the raw numbers of it, yeah. and and to explain to you what the disparities are, and what the consequences of that are, and I mean, why the discourse is so fucked right now. I mean, the shocking number to me was the the raw the raw number of poor black people that that graduate with a bachelor's degree every year. It's like. <laughs> It's yeah, about twenty nine thousand. If we're being extremely generous, extremely and generous, using yeah. a measure that includes people above poverty. Um, yeah, twenty nine thousand. And honestly, for people <laughs> for the people who like numbers, if you were to go back to say the nineteen sixties and just start counting up and just assume, and remember, we've gotten better at graduating. Yeah. We're not great. We've gotten better, but let's just, for the sake of argument, say we've been doing this good every year. You might get just under two million. That's how many bachelors are minted since every 1960. Year. Yeah, since 1960. If we add it all up and assume none of them have died, we might have gotten to around two million uh, poor black scholars. On the other hand, two million is about how many bachelor's degrees the U.S. hands out every year. So we're talking about a Jeez. very, very, very <laughs> Small number. And I remember. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit off because, you know, it's closer to 60 years now. When I first started thinking about this, I was at like 55. But you'll have to forgive me. Um, I remember now what I really wanted to say about that whole uh, bringing up my family and, you know, sort of how they wouldn't know that. What I wanted to say was like the people who do care about the microaggressions, because you were mentioning how your grandmother would not care about it. Make the argument for why microaggressions matter on your own. That is what I would say. Don't bring up microaggressions next to the murder of a George Floyd, because what you're doing is you're using Floyd as an emotional leverage. That's what you're doing. Mm. Make the argument for microaggressions, everything that bothers you, make it on your own. I have no problem with, I, I know we use the term uh, derisively, and I'm, I'm fine with that, but I, if you know, black professional managerial class people are upset that they're getting passed over for, for promotions. I understand in an abstract sense when we're just focusing on justice. That or is to recommend the latest, you know, what's the best Jay-Z album or whatever. <laughs> you know. There is an injustice there. But when you write your piece about how you're getting passed over for VP spots, don't sprinkle in the lives of people who wouldn't even get considered for an entry level position at the company you're in. Make the case right. on your own, derive the emotional heft from your own life, from your class's life. Don't point to the black poor. Don't point to their bodies lying dead in the street to get white people to feel like, okay, I'm feeling sad and horrified by what's happening to mostly the black poor, but the numbers and everything being mentioned to me also have to do with, you know, upper class black issues and you're conflating them and you're using the black poor's leverage. 
make the case, support microaggressions. If that's, you know, what you want to do, if that's the main thing that affects you in your life, make the case to all the American readers, just do it without sprinkling in statistics about lives way worse than yours, especially when you're not in conversation with those poor black people who fill those statistics, especially when you don't even work in an office with them to be like, hey, are you also upset about microaggressions? I mean, if you're working with uh, Terrell from, you know, Moonlight, you have that opportunity to be like, yeah, those bother me too. And then, I mean, you know, go and do it. But if you're not having that conversation, don't just assume that this is, you know, yours to take. What happens to poor black people is not just for you to buy this political currency and spend it on whatever you want. Because at the end of the day, you know, the people who don't like my community, who don't like my class, um, they're going to say like that. I got it. You know, when they see more black movies getting made, they're like, they're going to think society did that specifically for me and the other poor black people. That was all for me. That's what I got. Political will was spent on that. And they're just going to assume it was good for me too. But we, we all know if you were to let either the families, Waz's mind vote on like, if for some reason they could just pick, where do you want the political will of empathetic white people to go? I don't, I don't think the Oscars are going to come up. I don't think it's yeah, uh, for the bad Black bad. Panther sequel. Most important political issue. This is probably going to be divisive and con- you know controversial on a uh, left-leaning YouTube channel, but I, I think maybe they're going to say jobs, schools, affordable housing, yep. say in their local government. I think that might beat out more artistic uh, aspirations. Hey, whoa, man, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't, ins- don't insult us by calling us left-leaning. We are all the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, sir. I wanted full. to give you an out in case, like, maybe uh, later. No, 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 no. We're dirty communists. You can call me anything, but the worst thing you can call me is a liberal. Hey, I want to thank you, man, so much for coming on, Bertrand, man. This this was an amazing conversation. Like I said, yeah. everybody, please go out and read his current piece and current affairs. It is fantastically done. Uh, I loved it. Uh, tell the people where they can find your work, man. Um, you know, pimp yourself, man, please. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's it's time. It's time for the pimp to happen. Uh, yeah, current affairs. They're the people that, you know, published this. You know, shout out to Nathan Robinson and Lida Gold, who was the editor who really worked with me on this piece. Find it on Current Affairs. Uh, Light is just amazing. Can't say enough nice things about it. Really help you with this. I'm also on Twitter. That's where I'll be promoting most of these things. Uh, black underscore trash, the A. It's, you know, use a four. Use a four instead of an A. It's not that hard. Um, so, <laughs> Virgin Cooper at black underscore trash four instead of an A or we current affairs. You have to get you a better Twitter handle, my brother. Yeah, but, but, no, but it's now, clever. Right I like back. it, but yeah. Oh, like it. So, yeah. Quick, quick one on that. We've tried. Writers have tried for a very long time to find a name that you can just point to, whether it's the truly disadvantaged or the black underclass for just saying that segment of black people who never move up. Half my family is white trash. It's vulgar, but white trash sticks it's catcher and people know what you're saying about it so to me being biracial being from poverty on both sides 
Black Trash was just close to my heart. Plus, you know, right. uh, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. We'll make it yes, work. Yes, sir. All right. That that's our show for this week, y'all. Make sure you subscribe to all the Count the Dings offerings, man. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, everything on YouTube, of course. Uh, we'll see you guys next week. We're out of here. <laughs>